Take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2 as we continue our series on the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, the overall series titled The Forecast for the Future, looking this morning at the subject, the blessing of brokenness, and I think you will see how appropriate the message turns out to be for a Lord's Supper Sunday. John, uh, Jesus writes, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Father, I think of Simon Peter's words in 1 Peter that if we suffer, it needs to be because of the name of Christ. If we suffer for wrongdoing, we're only getting what we deserve. And I think of Jesus' words to his disciples in John 15 that if they hated him, they'll hate us. The servant is not greater than the master. Lord, help us to be strong in these days that we're called upon to be salt and light. God, we thank you for the freedoms that we have in this country. We know that those could disappear. We know that many of our brothers and sisters in the Lord around the world do not enjoy these freedoms. And indeed, today they're going through trial and tribulation simply because they name the name of Jesus. And Lord, whereas we don't face that yet on a national level, maybe somebody here this morning in their work environment or even in their family, their faith is not accepted. And they're made fun of or they're opposed in some way. And God, I pray that that individual would find a great deal of strength through today's message. Lord Jesus, we just want to thank you for suffering for us. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before you, you endured the cross, despising the shame. The just died for the unjust. So as we go through persecution or suffering, help us to keep our eyes upon you. And so to find strength to run our race. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you sit here today, you probably don't realize it, but as a Christian, you owe a great debt in church history to a man by the name of Polycarp. Now Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. John, of course, wrote the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and also the book of Revelation that we're studying. 
Now, what's so significant about the life of Polycarp is that he lived in that period of time immediately following or at the end of the lives of many of the apostles and decades after some of them had already passed on. And so Polycarp is a bridge type figure, if you will, between the apostles and the period of the church fathers immediately following that. And that was a period of time in the life of the church when the church was being attacked by many false teachings. Polycarp's a man who stood in the gap and and, uh, helped the church during that period of time to remain faithful and true. Now what would you expect out of the life of somebody like Polycarp who had been faithful? Well, you would hope at least that he was able to live out his years in some degree of comfort. But I want you to listen to the outcome of his life. In his old age, Polycarp was hunted by Roman officials like a wild animal during the Roman persecution of believers. Finally, upon capturing him, his captors were so moved by his words of courage his obvious character, his compassion, and his prayers that they begged him to pledge allegiance to Caesar instead of Christ and to so spare his life. Now when Polycarp would not recant his Christian faith, they hauled him into the arena. Both Jews and Gentiles with unrestrainable anger and a loud voice called out, this is the teacher of impiety, the father of the Christians, the destroyer of Rome's gods, who teacheth many neither to sacrifice nor to worship the gods. Now upon saying these things, the crowd shouted out for the proconsul to bring in the wild beast that Polycarp might be torn to shreds. But the proconsul replied that it was not lawful for him to do so since the exhibition time of wild beast was complete. And so then they began shouting with one voice that Polycarp would be burned at the stake alive. And so as he was brought into the arena, again he was urged to turn his back on Christ and to embrace the gods of the Romans. Polycarp responded, Eighty and six years have I served him and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Again the proconsul urged him, To say of Christians who would not worship Rome's gods, away with the atheist. But as Polycarp faced the crowd that day of idolaters, speaking to them, he waved his arms, looking at them in the eye, and said, yes, away with the atheist, speaking of them. To which he was immediately burned at the stake alive. Now what's significant about that story is that Polycarp's martyrdom happened 
at Smyrna. He was the bishop of the church at Smyrna. And today we're looking at the letter to the church at Smyrna. Now folks, even in a so-called society of religious liberty as we live in today, the church will bring the wrath of the unrepentant world if it courageously and, and faithfully confronts the evils of this age. And what we learn today in this letter is that in the midst of our suffering, should we ever be called upon to go through that type of suffering, we're not promised that we will be delivered from every trial or tribulation. We're not even promised that our lives will be spared, but we are promised that the Lord Jesus Christ will be with us and sustain us. And give us the strength that we need in that hour and the words that we need in that hour. And I want us to see that today. Now we're going to follow today the pattern that I laid out last week. Uh, the, the outline, and I've given you the full outline this morning without any fill in the blanks because we need to hurry. And I want to get done with the message. And in case I don't get done with the message, I wanted you to have the, the sermon brief in full this morning. So the first thing I want you to notice with me is the church. Now we don't know from the book of Acts when the gospel was first introduced into Smyrna. But after delivering the Ephesians their letter, the next major city that the postman would have come to was Smyrna that was 35 miles due north of Ephesus. Now Smyrna may have been built as early as about 3,000 B.C., but around 600 B.C. it was destroyed by the Lydians and it lay in ruin for more than three centuries. And then in 290 B.C., two of the successors to Alexander the Great rebuilt the city. Now scholars describe Smyrna as the most beautiful of all the seven cities that we will look at in Revelation 2 and 3. There was a great competition between Ephesus and Smyrna. Smyrna was so beautiful, in fact, that it earned for itself the designation of Smyrna the Beautiful. It claimed to be the birthplace of the poet Homer. Smyrna still exists today as the modern city of uh, Izmir, Turkey. Now, Smyrna was one of Rome's greatest allies. Its citizens were so infatuated with Rome that in 195 B.C. they built a temple in which the Roman Empire itself would be worshipped and idolized. A century later, one of Rome's armies was in the area and they were ill-clad and they were faced with a hard winter season. And so when their situation was announced to the general assembly in Smyrna, the citizens even sent the very clothes off their back so that the Roman soldiers uh, could be warm that winter. And as you can imagine, Rome awarded Smyrna with... Uh, with great honors because of their loyalty. And they chose Smyrna to be the site for the new temple that would be dedicated to the emperor Tiberius. When the city was destroyed by an earthquake in the late 2nd century, Marcus Aurelius rebuilt it. 
Now, as far as the church at Smyrna was concerned, they were a suffering church under heavy persecution. In fact, the very name Smyrna means myrrh, which suggests death. Myrrh was a very bitter oil used to anoint and embalm a body for death. There was an industry at Smyrna that made myrrh, and the citizens of the city had become very wealthy off of that industry. It's very appropriate and symbolic in this case that such a persecuted church was in a place that stood for bitterness and death. It's believed to be perhaps the most persecuted of all New Testament churches. But evidently the Christians at Smyrna had not lost their love for Christ as they had at Ephesus because they were prepared to suffer for him. They remind us of the apostles in the book of Acts who rejoiced because they counted it a joy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ who had saved them. That was the same attitude of the believers at Smyrna. Now, I wonder this morning, how much are you and I willing to suffer for Christ? Are we willing to even inconvenience ourselves for the sake of the gospel? Are there any lines that we draw in our commitment and basically we say, though in unspoken words, Lord, I will go this far for you, but no further. Are there any lines that you draw? What if your faith negatively impacted your work or your family or your finances? Would you still be true to Jesus Christ or would you compromise? Now secondly, I want you to notice the commendation. And you'll notice in this letter that there is no condemnation, there is only commendation. Only one of two churches that we'll look at that there was no condemnation given at all. Look at the commendation. Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. There's unmixed praise for the church at Smyrna. Jesus opens up by identifying himself to them, saying that he is the first and the last. And the one who died but is risen again. You see, many of the citizens at Smyrna put Rome up on a pedestal. They would have put Rome first and Rome's leaders and the Roman gods first. But Jesus says, oh, no, 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 no. I'm the first and the last. And the one who died and has come to life again, that would have been a word of identification to them. You see, the city had died, but it had come back to life in a glorious way. Jesus had died. He was crucified. But on the third day, he was risen from the dead. And so the Lord wants the Christians at Smyrna to know that he has suffered too. He knows what they're going through and he wants them to see that, that death is not the end. His death was not the end. He rose again and he wants them to understand that for believers, the trials and tribulations that we go through in life don't have the final say. Aren't you glad of that this morning? 
And so he identifies with them in their suffering. There is no way they could say to him, but Lord, you don't understand what we're going through. Because he could say, oh yes I do. I was rejected, I was mocked, I was blasphemed, I was slandered. They produced false witnesses about me and finally they hung me on a cross and they crucified me. I know exactly what you're going through. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4 that we have a sympathetic high priest. That's what the incarnation of Jesus brings to us. Not only is he fully God, but he's fully man. He's able to identify with us in everything we go through in life because he's walked in our shoes and he's faced our temptations but without sin and he's faced our trials and tribulations. He understands. And he's sovereign. He says, I know. There is nothing you face in life as a believer. There's no hardship you go through. There's no opposition you go through that he doesn't know about that fully and and identify with you in that. I want you to notice the threefold commendation that he gives to them. He commends them for the way that they've endured tribulation. Now the word for trials here stands for very severe trials. It literally means pressure and was used of sometimes executing people by crushing them to death. That's the kind of trials they were facing at Smyrna. Once a year in the pagan temple, all of the citizens were to go in and offer incense to a bust of Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. And the citizens of Smyrna had no problem doing that. They had their idols, but they also participated in the mandated Caesar worship. If the Christians had been willing to take Jesus and put him alongside of all these Roman gods and pledge allegiance to Caesar on top of Christ, then everything would have been just fine for the Christians. But these Christians in Smyrna, thankfully, were like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refused to bow the knee to the gods of this age. Folks, do you realize it's the same for us today? If we're willing to embrace the world and Jesus at the same time, we will never face persecution at the hands of the world. If we're willing to go along with everybody else, and as the old saying goes, while in Rome, do as the Romans do, then we will never encounter the wrath of the world. The world could care less that you get up, get dressed, come to church on a Sunday morning as long as you and I keep our Christianity within these walls and then once outside of these walls, we just go along with what everybody else is doing. The world would have no problem with that. That's why we need to understand something very important that's going on in the culture right now. And and it's an example, I think, of the fact that words matter and words carry with them consequences. There are some people right now that are using the expression freedom of worship. 
Now, freedom of worship means that you can come to a house of worship in America on a Sunday morning or a temple or whatever your faith happens to be. You can go to your place of worship and inside the walls of that place of worship, you can carry out your faith. But when you walk out of the doors of that place of worship and onto the streets of America, you leave it behind. And out in the world, you're simply a citizen of the world. Religious liberty, on the other hand, means that not only do we have the freedom to go to the place of worship of our choice and to worship unhindered, but religious liberty means that we can also go out into the streets of the city and live out our faith in the public square. And religious liberty is what this country was founded on. And so I want you to understand the difference of those phrases that are being thrown around today. There's a very important Distinction between those two phrases. And at Smyrna, even though they did not have religious liberty, yet in spite of that, they were willing to take the name of Jesus out onto the streets of the city, even if it meant they were imprisoned or beaten for their faith or even executed. And Jesus commends them for that. He's basically saying here, well done, good and faithful servant. And he also commends them for the way they've endured poverty. There were two Greek words uh, for poverty. One word means you're getting by. You're barely scraping things together. And every week or every month, you're making ends meet. You don't have anything left over, but you're making ends meet. But now there was another word used here that means you've gone over the edge. You're destitute. I like what Dr. Fred Luter says. He says they were so poor growing up, they weren't making ends. He said the ends weren't meeting in any way and shaking hands. The, The ends were just kind of far apart and waving at one another. Well, that's how they were at Smyrna. They were were poor to the point of destitution. Now, one might ask, why in such a wealthy city were the believers poor? Well, the reason was that in Smyrna, every career path had its deity. You belonged to a guild or a, tr- uh, or a labor union. They had that sort of thing back then too. And, and you would join in with the meetings with the other members of your labor union and the only way that you could get ahead in, in your career path was go to these meetings and, and, and take part, the, each one of these career paths, each one of these guilds would have their own patron idol, their own God. And you would swear allegiance to and burn incense to and make offerings to the idol of your trade union. Now obviously the believers would not do that. And so they were ostracized and not given work. Now isn't it interesting that sometimes today people come to church because it's good for business. But back in that day in Smyrna to be a believer and go to church was bad for business. And yet they were willing to take that stand anyway. 
What if by identifying with Christ today, what if that meant that you were not going to be able to adequately provide for your family? What if it might mean that as you went out into the society and people found out, say you were a business owner and they found out you were a believer and talk got out? What if we lived in a society like they did back then and talk got out and because you were a believer who would not worship the gods of the age, people would not come and patronize your business. And so you wouldn't make money. You wouldn't earn a living. You wouldn't be able to pay your bills. You may not, you may not even be able to feed your family. You might have trouble doing that. If that were the situation today, would you remain faithful to Christ? Would you? I tell you what, folks, we don't understand that kind of persecution today, but there are Christians all over the world this morning. In the 20th century, there were more martyrs than all the previous centuries combined. We, we think that's not even a part of the culture today because of the land that we live in, and yet we don't understand what some believers in Christ are facing all over this world today. You mean in certain parts of the world, they find out you're a Christian, you'll either be in prison, you might even be executed. What if the stakes were that high? Would you still follow Jesus? Would you? At Smyrna they did. And Jesus commends them. And I want you to notice the third word of commendation. He commends them for the way that they've endured blasphemy. The word blasphemy here literally means slander. It refers to the lies and the malicious gossip that was being said against the Christians by the Jews of that area. Now you see, being a protected religion under the Roman Empire, the Jews did not have to go into the pagan temples and burn the incense and say Caesar is Lord. They were, they were grandfathered in, if you will. They were a protected religion in the Roman Empire, but the Christians were not. And so in Smyrna, at least, the Jews were calling attention to the Christians, and they were publicly slandering the Christians. Now, that's not surprising when we even think about the trial of Jesus. Jesus even warned his disciples, if they speak ill of me, then they'll do the same with you. The servant's not greater than the master. Now Christ is very blunt in verse 9 here. He refers to them as a synagogue of Satan. Does that surprise you that the devil has his crowd too? It shouldn't. Jesus said even in the church until the end of the age, there'd be wheat and tares growing up together in the church the disciples say, you want us to try to weed out the, the tares? He said, no, because in weeding out the tares, you might uproot some of the wheat. Don't worry about it. The angels at the end of the age, they'll make the separation at the judgment. But that shouldn't surprise us. That even within a body of believers, there can be God's crowd and the devil's crowd. And that's, they were facing things like that at Smyrna. The only thing is the devil's crowd was, was coming out in all-out force against the believers in Christ and doing everything against them that they possibly could and lying about them and blaspheming them and slandering them. You see, sometimes Christians in the early church were called cannibals 
because of what we're going to observe here this morning, the Lord's Supper. Now we know the elements are symbols of the body and blood of Christ. But the pagan world didn't understand that. They thought they were eating the body and blood somehow of their founder, the one that they proclaim as Lord, the one they follow. They're, they're ingesting his body and blood in some way. And so they refer to Christians as, as cannibals in some circles. In other circles, Christians were referred to as atheists. Because Christians wouldn't worship all the gods of the Greeks and the Romans. And because they wouldn't worship the gods of the Greeks and the Romans, they were referred to as atheists. Christians were sometimes slandered and accused of incest. Because we refer to one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And your wife might be your wife, but she's also your, your sister in Christ. And we, we talk about, the New Testament talks about greeting one another with a holy kiss. And so they said those Christians must also be a, a bunch of people who practice incest. And so in a number of ways, believers were slandered. They were lied about. Have you ever been slandered? Have you ever been lied about? The Bible says Christ was, and when reviled, he didn't revile back. Jesus says, I know your tribulation and, and, and poverty and blasphemy that you endure, and I know it by experience. That's the word used here, to know something by experience. He's not, he's not talking about a knowledge that's kind of an ivory tower type knowledge. Yeah, I'm aware that that's going on. I don't know anything about it as far as experience. That's not the word. The word is to know by experience. Jesus faced all that they faced and more and his words here give them divine assurance that he's with them. Folks, it's nice to know that he said he would never leave or forsake us. He never promised us it would be easy, but he did give the promise that he's overcome the world. You realize that through persecution in and of itself, the church, believers have never been weakened by that. Jacob was stronger after he went through everything that he went through and he, and he wrestled with the angel of the Lord. Paul was stronger with the thorn in the flesh staying, not being removed. Joseph became stronger and elevated in God's eyes and then finally elevated in the world even though his brothers had turned against him. Opposition in and of itself has never hurt the church. Now the last thing we ever want in life is opposition or hardship and yet God can use it to mature us. What type of trial might you be going through today? God can use that to strengthen you. You might be going through opposition at the workplace because you're known as a believer or at school. Because you're a believer in Christ. What you need to do is keep your eyes on Jesus. Jesus can use that time of brokenness in your life to glorify himself and do some pretty awesome things in your life. Again, not that we ask, for, nobody wants that. But if it happens, Christ can use it. 
Well, third thing I want you to notice, the challenge in verse 10 that he gives them. He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He admonished them not to live in fear. Isn't it nice to know we don't have to go through life in fear? Anything that happens to us is only by his permission. Think of Job. Everything Job faced that's recorded in the book of Job was only by God's permission. He says some of them are going to face prison. Some of the greatest Christians of all times have endured prison. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress from prison. Pilgrim's Progress, probably other than the Bible, the most read book in Christian history perhaps. John Bunyan was in prison for his Christian faith and that's where he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He lets them know here they're about to face a test. But he lets them know also it's only for a season. God knows our limits and he's not going to put on us more than we can bear. Somebody has well said when the heat is turned up we can be comforted knowing that it's God's hand that's on the thermostat. He says it'll be for 10 days. Some have seen the 10 periods of Roman persecution here being referenced. Some have seen the last Roman persecution that lasted for 10 days. Uh, Others have just seen in this that God is saying it'll be a determined but limited amount of time. But to this he adds a second challenge. He admonishes them to be faithful. Folks, as we look at the New Testament... The one thing we're called upon to be is is faithful. The Bible says not many wise, not many noble, not many wealthy are called. The one thing in the Bible that a disciple of Jesus Christ is called upon to be is faithful. Think of that. In your ministry to the body of Christ, your mission to the world, the one thing, whatever your place in the body is, whatever your giftedness is, whatever God's called you to do, the one thing he's looking for is faithfulness. Not ability, but availability and faithfulness. Are you being faithful with what God has given you to do? That's how God measures a church. It's not simply by the buildings or the budgets or all the programs, but it's by the faithfulness of that collective body of people and as individuals. There's a story of how the Pope and the Catholic theologian Thomas Aquinas were going through a beautiful cathedral one time and the Pope was showing Aquinas all of the beautiful possessions of the church and he said, Thomas, no longer does the church have to say, silver and gold have I none. Thomas looked at him with a sad face and said, yes, but Pope... No longer can the church say, rise up and take up thy mat and walk. How good are we at the one thing Christ has asked us to do? To be faithful. Finally, I want you to see the promise in verses 10 and 11. The first promise is the crown of life. Not the temporary crown that the people of Smyrna would have known all about. I mentioned last week how at Ephesus just 35 miles away every year they had something akin to our Olympic Games. 
And at those games, a perishable wreath would be given to the winner. He's not talking about a perishable wreath, but he's talking about the crown of life. The crown of life. Christ is calling on them to have that eternal perspective, not earthly rewards, but, but heavenly rewards. And, and then on top of the crown of life, he's talked about the consummation of life. He says you'll be spared the second death. Now, no true believer ever has to fear the second death, which amounts to eternal separation from Jesus. Christians will never experience that loss. You see, if you've only been born once, the physical birth, you're going to die twice. The physical death as well as the spiritual death. Spiritual death is eternal separation from Christ in hell. But if you've been born twice, physically but also spiritually, Jesus talked to Nicodemus about you must be born again. If you've been born again, the spiritual death on top of the physical, uh, the, the spiritual birth on top of the physical birth, you'll only die once and that'll never hurt you. But you won't die the second death. In fact, for a Christian to die, the scripture says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And he assures them that that's what they will receive. Folks, all through the book of Revelation, what we're going to see is that the church is being told things are going to get really bad on the face of the earth. They're going to get worse and worse and Christians are going to have to suffer and some believers will be spared and make it through times of testing. Others might even have to pay with their life. But he's reminding us in both situations we're in a win-win scenario. Amen? We go through trial in this life, he's with us. If we die... He's still with us. We're not lost. We're ushered into the presence of God. And we win in the most ultimate kind of way. That's the promise we have as believers in Christ. I want to invite you to bow with me in prayer, please, as we close. As every head's bowed and every eye closed, I want you to notice that Jesus closes this letter by saying, He who has an ear, let him listen. Are you listening this morning? It's important that you and I persevere. What are you going through? Trust that trial over to Jesus Christ. He might not get you out of the fire, but he'll bring you through it. And so it's very important that we keep our eyes on him. And at Smyrna they did that. They did not allow their earthly troubles to get them off course. They kept their eyes on Jesus. Do you need to ask him to help you do that this morning? Don't imagine if you're going through difficulties in life, there's something wrong with your faith. If there was something wrong with your faith, then there was something also wrong with Daniel's faith, with Paul's faith, and even with the faith of the Lord Jesus. Suffering in this world is not uncommon. We're not to think it's strange. We're not to suffer for evil doing, but if we suffer for Christ, Christ says you're blessed. 
And he can take a broken life and use it for his glory. Ask God this morning to teach you and strengthen you through hardship. Father, I pray that you'd speak to your people today. I might be speaking to somebody who's going through some kind of deep trial. Perhaps a family member or an employer or an employee or a friend who's just given them a terrible time because of their Christian faith. Or maybe there's some decisions a man or a woman in this place has made. They've taken some kind of stand that maybe has affected their finances in some way. Or affected certain friendships. God give them strength. Help them to keep their eyes on you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Somebody here this morning, no doubt, in a crowd this size, needs to come forward and say, Pastor, I'm going through trial and tribulation, but right now I'm going through it alone. I don't have a relationship with Christ. I want to be saved. I'd like to pray with you about that. Maybe others who you know you are saved, you just simply want to come forward and bow at the altar this morning and say, God, I am in that valley, I am in that trial, and I need strength from you. Help me to keep my eyes on you.